pain. It's the fifth vital sign. Physicians have been wine and dined and absolutely make it a priority to eliminate it within their patients. So much so that because of doctors' over-eagerness to treat pain, opioid epidemics have become a leading cause of death in the United States. But pain management has not been entirely equal. Black Americans experience inequities in pain management care and in dealing with chronic pain. This is partly due to a racist pseudoscientific notion that black people experience pain differently. Two new disturbing reports about mortality rates from mothers and... Racism is a serious public health threat. Hi, welcome back to Empowerment Rx. My name is Austin. I'm your host. And today we're going to be taking a deep dive into the history of health disparities among Black populations in the United States. I do want to issue a fair content warning to everyone. We will, we will be discussing history today. And so some of the history may be fairly emotionally distressing. And so I do want to advise you to take care of yourself to avoid the listening to that part of the episode or just to avoid this episode entirely. Last episode, we talked a lot about maternal health care and more specifically intersectionality within maternal health care, um, focusing on the very vulnerable populations of indigenous women and black women. Today, we're going to focus a little bit more broadly on um, black Americans. So I first want to kind of give a brief overview and history of black health care in the United States. So from the times of ancient science, race was used as a hierarchy. Discriminatory cycle suggested that race might be a of classifying mankind. These ideas have been around for thousands of years and they are based in absolutely no absolute science or logic. By the 17th century, race became a subject of formal theoretical speculation and scientific investigation. It became something to discuss, to debate, to become a part of science. And we now know today that there is no biological difference between races. Genetically, 99% similar. So because of this new philosophy and this new type of thinking that race could be used in some way to subjugate and divide the human race. So the British colonization of North America, Western medicine and biology, the fact that their influence was the major one in all of these fields, because due to their colonization imperialism, this colonization had absolutely laid the foundations of racial inferiority. This was so much so, these ideas of racial inferiority were so strong among the scientific community, the pseudoscience as a way to describe people's conditions and to describe and divide people, that a doctor was considered to be better, better trained, if he was likely to participate in activities such as the Atlantic slave trade without attacks of the conscience. By the 19th century, racially oriented European pseudoscientific data, along with data produced by the American School of Anthropology, was being used in the United States to justify and defend Black slavery. So a lot of the pseudoscience that we saw from this era was in a was in a way to justify the legislation and policy to to maintain chattel slavery. These these stereotypes, craniometrics, um, different biological incorrect biological drawings and anatomical drawings were created in order to justify the not only the moral side of chattel slavery, but the financial side to make sure that there was worth to keeping this around. African-Americans were assumed to be disease carriers because of their health, but their health was because of the conditions they lived in. So due to malnutrition, unhygienic living spaces, lack of socioeconomic support, lack of health care, African-Americans were experiencing higher disparities in rates of disease, which in turn contributed to a self-fulfilling prophecy, a self-fulfilling cycle 
of then not receiving care because they were considered to be biologically impure, to be considered to be carrying these diseases, which again, absolute pseudoscience. American medical journals and textbooks were laced with pseudoscientific racist principles, derogatory racial character references, and pronouncements of imp impending Black racial extinction. The Tuskegee experiment, for example, was an unethical, exploitative experiment in which treated for syphilis was withheld for some 500 rural Black illiterate, poverty-stricken men. So I've talked a lot about a lack of bodily autonomy, especially in the last episode. And so this is a huge example of a, um, an underrepresented, underserved group losing their bodily autonomy in the context of medicine. And again, we talk about these social determinants of health. It's impossible to receive care that is necessary for you if you do not even have the bodily autonomy to advocate for yourself. You don't have the chance to make decisions for yourself. And so... And this is a horrible example of torture, an example of somebody losing their ability to choose for themselves, for their ability to consent, because medicine without consent is torture. Black medical schools were systematically excluded from the medical school stewardship movement over urban public hospitals and health facilities over most of the 20th century. And so today, what that means is that because many Black medical schools are underrepresented, underserved, there is a lack of Black students matriculating to med medical school and therefore a major shortage in um, Black physicians and Black healthcare workers. Now, these rumors, these, this pseudoscience, these, these what were once considered to be fact, these, these different stereotypes, have become so ingrained in medical culture and ingrained in um, the physicians of the past that these pseudoscience and these false notions continue to exist today and are absolutely a major contributor to the health disparities that Black Americans face. When we talk about things like chronic diseases, like higher rates of hypertension, higher rates of um, diabetes, when we talk about these different instances of health, it's very racist notions that continue the lack of care that this group of people are receiving. And things like different kidney anatomy or things like pain tolerance. Pain tolerance is a huge one. These different false racist notions are absolutely a major contributor as to why this group experiences very negative health outcomes. Now, I think it's really important to contextualize this sort of history. History does not stay in the past and does not go away just because somebody has rectified it in some sort of capacity a little bit or has acknowledged it as false, these things linger. And so these false notions, although they may have been rejected by, um, you know, the American Medical Association, or they might have been rejected by different medical schools, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, a lot of these notions are being kept on by previous physicians, by um, certain certain groups of people are still perpetuating this narrative. And so at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it was just pseudoscience and it's wrong now, it still is having major effects on this group of people today. So now I want to address some of the tangible statistics, the tangible health disparities that have been at birth. Black people have shorter life expectancies compared to white people, 70.8 years versus 76.4 years for white people. And they experienced a larger decline in life expectancy than white people between 2019 and 2021, with it falling by four years. So if you're not familiar, the life expectancy uh, for United States for Americans decreased majorly during the COVID years. So the years between 2019 and 2022, um, there was a major decrease in life expectancy. And again, this is exacerbated um, for Black Americans because of those, again, those increased health disparities, those increased bad health outcomes. African-American women are three times more likely to die of pregnancy-related causes than white women. We talked a lot about maternal health care in the last episode. We talked about medical gaslighting, um, the, the, the systemic barriers to accessing proper care, 
Um, and so we talked a lot about the reasons why this might agree. But again, Black women are a very vulnerable population. Black infants are a very vulnerable population. And so at the end of the day, um, these disparities are quite frightening. African-Americans are more likely to die from cancer and heart disease than whites and are at a greater risk for the onset of diabetes. And I'll be talking a little bit more about why some of the reasons for these disparities are. Um, but again, we also have to consider physical things as well, not just um, the social stressors and the social systems that enact this, but things like other other types of social stressors, things like food insecurity, food deserts, um, again, socioeconomic barriers um, to accessing nutritious and healthy food and to improve living conditions and living habits. The African-American infant mortality rate is twice the rate for white infants. And again, this is, we discussed this in the last episode. In fact, African-American children are 10 times more likely to die by gun violence than white children. And again, we can think of multiple reasons for this, but I guess the one that comes most... I also want to address the Southern resistance to expanding social welfare programs to address generational poverty. So especially in the South, but in a majority of the United States, there's a huge resistance to expanding programs like Medicaid, Medicare, um, food stamps, WIC. We're talking social welfare programs that absolutely increase the amount of resources needed for somebody to experience um, the proper the proper care, to experience the proper living conditions, to live a healthy lifestyle, they're being denied those opportunities. And so I think that addressing this, this policy side of things is really important because at the end of the day, if people are not being addressed the proper resources to address these systemic barriers and they're not being moved to a place of liberation, then it's a there's no way out and there's no way to address these disparities. Another really important thing to consider historically is residential segregation. Um, due to segregation, there was and redlining and, and um, other tactics that were used to create impoverished Black neighborhoods to keep Black neighborhoods from receiving access to things that the um, white residences had access to. Um, there was less hospitals and there's less hospitals now in primarily black residential areas. And so if you're not even able to access the hospital, it's impossible to get the proper care, let alone get to the hospital and then let alone access proper care given to you by a physician and to um, have that physician account for all biases. Also a lack of generational wealth, right, that white people possess and white people have that privilege of of, of having generations upon generations of um, workers and having generations upon generations of, of freedom to work and to engage within this capitalistic market. So the inability to afford healthcare or the inability to take time off work to afford, um, or the inability to afford to take off work because you need the money or the inability to afford um, fresh produce or the inability to get to a grocery store that offers fresh produce. One huge one that we do have to address again is, is more related to the social, uh, the social barriers. So again, talking back about the weathering effect that I noted earlier, um, the effect of chronic stress due to discrimination and living in a racialized uh, white supremacist society. This stress is absolutely a killer on your health. And so by not addressing these systemic barriers and promoting a route to liberation from these, these, these systems that purposefully uphold white supremacy, you're not going to be able to eliminate that stress from people's lives. And the stress is killer. It's absolutely a major reason why there's health disparities. We, we have to talk a little about why white wealth does not equal black wealth, right? Because in the society, the amount of generations, black Americans, African-Americans in particular, are still suffering and, 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 and reeling back from the effects of chattel slavery. And so there is no, even though a white person and a black person might have the same amount of money, 
that white person's money is worth significantly more because of their privilege and the status that they hold and the fact that they've been an equal part of the society for and the dominant acting force in the society for hundreds upon hundreds of years. Wealth is not just about a dollar amount. It's about power. It's about influence. It's about um, getting access to the things that you need. Cultural wealth is a huge one. Another important one is individual physician bias. Again, so physicians that um, do contain implicit bias, and now everyone does have some implicit bias, but they have not chosen to actively work through those feelings, um, or they continue to believe in these false pseudoscientific notions that I've already discussed. The systemic barring of Black people in healthcare, again, the lack of Black students that are matriculating to medical school is absolutely a concern because, again, uh, discussing this a little bit later, but improving representation is going to improve health outcomes. The coping mechanisms to deal with this chronic stress from discrimination and systemic racism that I've already discussed, uh, coping mechanisms are absolutely crucial to understand that these are not the fault of the group, but more so a result of, again, this weathering effect, this, this stress. And so by not acknowledging the coping mechanisms that may or may not be healthy, um, we're ignoring a huge part of people's culture and the reason why they may be experiencing different levels of health outcomes. Clinical gaslighting is a huge one, right? Not believing certain groups of people and not believing in their advocacy for themselves because you either believe they're inferior, you believe they're stupid, you believe that they are wrong, you believe that they are looking for something other than healthcare. And so this comes again from physicians or from other healthcare professionals. Clinical gaslighting is huge and patients should absolutely take the right to advocate for themselves and to... Um, and to not be made to feel like they're crazy for experiencing the symptoms that they are and wanting the care that they need. And again, just as everything does, these health inequities have their roots in chattel slavery. Um, chattel slaves were not, enslaved people were not given the opportunity to receive health care. Um, they were given the bare minimum health care to get them back out into working and to be seen as valuable chattel, to be seen as valuable property. And so this has continued again, just like as the police store, uh, the police force system in the United States started out as a slave patrol, um, health care and doctors started out in the same way. And so, again, these 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 issues for African-Americans all root back to three. another. Now, this section of the podcast, I'm going to discuss some solutions slash progress that has been, been been made. So it has been proven that increasing black diversity in med school matriculation and eventually healthcare careers decreases health disparities. And so I want to take a second to kind of unpack that idea. The reason why increasing diversity increases health outcomes is because you're bringing in valuable perspective and lived experience that a white physician cannot bring to the table when diagnosing patients. I myself, for example, if I were to become a white physician, um, I have to understand that I cannot fully grasp every single lived experience and I cannot fully account for all of these social determinants of health because I've never personally lived those. And so I can research them, I can talk about them, I can study them. But at the end of the day, I've never actually lived with those experiences. So I have no clue what that does um, on my physical and my mental well-being. Whereas when you increase the diversity, you have doctors and physicians and healthcare professionals that can accurately understand what a patient is going through, understand the context of what they live, understand their cultural context, understand what is contributing to their overall picture of health in a way that only having white doctors cannot. And one way to increase this, this matriculation is the additional support for vulnerable students, right? So programs at schools, especially for undergrads, you know, having academic resource support, having groups, pre-professional groups specifically for Black students, having um, space for these students on campus, and having financial aid support, having all these different types of opportunities for these students because they are the most vulnerable to these systemic stressors and they are the most likely to have to um, pursue a different career path, et cetera, or be weeded out. 
Um, and it's not their fault. It's just that this is a systemic barrier to these exist to keep them out of uh, physicianhood, to keep them out of a medical career. Again, and this includes changing admission programs to be more equitable, right? We can't look at every applicant the same because not every applicant has had the same access to social resources in order to accomplish some of the things that they've accomplished. You might have a candidate that has, you know, 7,500 hours in clinical research, but they come from a family that makes $500,000 a year. Their parents are doctors. They went to a school that has a nearby clinical research program. They went to a campus that had like-minded people like them, and they had a sense of community, a sense of well-being. Then you have a student who may only have, you know, 100 hours in clinical research, but they didn't come from their first-generation student. They're a low-income student. They had to work through college. And so, again, changing admissions programs to be more equitable. And in the light of the uh, SCOTUS um, affirmative action case, it is definitely a little bit shaky on what that looks like um, moving forward. Again, pr providing additional social welfare. I already talked about the social welfare piece of this discussion today, but again, providing additional social welfare support for people and, and expanding Medicare, expanding Medicaid, expanding um, access to food. These are all really important programs that are going to just overall increase the picture of health for people. And a big discussion that I've been seeing lately, especially in California, is the idea of reparations, correct? Reparations made to African-Americans and the descendants of enslaved people um, to account for the generations of inequity and the generations of um, poverty and the generations of the effects that have come from the descendant, uh, the descendants of the legacy of slavery. And so, again, a, a one way to maybe decrease some of these health inequities and to kind of erase some of the, the systemic barriers and promote a road to liberation is to provide reparations. Another important piece is improved equity programs, especially in undergraduate programs, making sure students have the same access to resources such as tutoring, peer tutoring, accessing research, accessing different types of resources that are going to help them succeed in an academic and professional setting. History awareness, correct? I mean, understanding that a lot of these false a lot of these notions that exist about Black people in healthcare are false. They're racist and they're pseudoscientific. And understanding that and having a, a, a reality check about what it means to be a doctor caring for a Black patient is honestly going to create a much better health outcome for that individual. And again, with all of this moving towards liberation and erasing these systemic barriers that promote chronic stress among this population, which lead them to not only experience worth health, health outcomes, but because of the physician bias and other systemic barriers to actually receiving care, leads to earlier death and to worse um, cases of lifestyle. I want to touch on the last piece of the podcast today, which is intersectionality. Again, this podcast is dedicated to looking at intersectionality. And so I think it's really important to note that once again, Black women are among the least protected group of people in the society. Racial gaslighting as well as gaslighting among gender lines has left Black women unprotected. Intersectionality is crucial in understanding individual scenarios because if you look at um, the the black population is one whole population you're going to be missing a huge picture when you look at different um, subpopulations among this population for example um, lgbtq plus uh, black people if you look at black women for example um, black children and so there's definitely intersectionality among all these different identities that provide a different view of care for black individuals. And so it's really important to understand that intersectionality is absolutely crucial in medicine and absolutely crucial in providing accurate care that takes account into account all of these social determinants of health. The black population in the United States experiences heavy health disparities among the forms of maternal health care,
in the forms of decreased lifespan, increased risk for certain diseases, and the increased risk of death for mothers and their children. The reason for this lies in the systemic and the systemic barriers caused by chattel slavery and the generational poverty that still plagues many populations to this day and the lack of access. Solutions include increased awareness, increased social welfare, increased equity programs, and also a move towards liberation to address these systemic barriers that have been caused by years of false information and years of oppression and this weathering effect that has taken hold of the health in the Black population. I want to thank you all today for taking the time to listen to this episode. This episode is brought to you by a second-year student at Duke University, self-managed, self-produced, and self-written. If you like what you're hearing, I would appreciate if you could share the podcast and leave your thoughts below if anything could be improved upon. I'm still working out a lot of things um, with the logistics of this podcast and trying to get on a steady schedule, and so I appreciate the patience if you are a listener. Um, This podcast is a huge passion project of mine, and I want to make sure that I'm addressing these issues with quality and with care. And so if there's anything that you think that I have missed in today's episode, please do not feel please feel free to let me know. And again, thank you for listening so much, and I'll see you in the next one. Imagine being diagnosed with major depressive disorder. You fit the criteria, you are given a diagnosis. You get prescribed Soloft. You get prescribed Soloft, and you go on about your day. One day, however, the state deems your depression as a threat to family security and is mentally deranged, bans all of your medication, and erases your narrative from public schools, further discouraging other people to seek help. This is the reality of gender-affirming care in the United States.